if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. As we continue to make our way through book one of the Psalms, we come to the end of this grouping of Psalms that consists of Psalm 10 to 14 that largely focuses on and meditates and laments over the nature of fallen man and his wickedness, the evil that David had to face from men who reject God in his own life. And again, his, his thinking over, his contemplations about this unglorious reality about fallen man apart from Christ. So this morning we're in Psalm 14 that rounds out this section and focuses in on the nature of fallen man. And we will, we will look at that together this morning. We'll begin by reading the whole psalm together. Psalm 14, beginning in verse 1 down to verse 7. This is a psalm of David, of course. He writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, beginning in verse 1, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up My people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There, they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is His refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of His people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, as David looked around during his own day, and he saw many of the people who were called by Your name, the people who were in covenant with You, His fellow Jews, kinsmen according to the flesh. He looked around and he saw corruption everywhere. He saw idolatry everywhere. He suffered often because of this very evil of men who though they claimed to be religious, though they claimed to be even worshipers of Yahweh, they were dead. They had no life in them at all. 
Because of that, their deeds were corrupt. They did not seek you. Because of that, they often sought to kill him. You're anointed. And he writes here, even in this psalm, of your assessment of the same situation, your judgment from on high, that as you look upon the children of men, as you see all of those who are not united to you, as you see the true nature of the human heart, you see evil. Lord, this is a warning for us. This is instruction for us. It is a reminder that apart from Christ, the judgment has already been been issued. And it falls against us. So if we hear this word this morning, we hear it in truth. It should drive us to the only one who can save us from the grave predicament we are in as unrighteous sinners. It should drive us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. That we might have life in His name. That we might be counted among those who are saved by His name. So Father, I pray for our time this morning. I pray that as we heed your word as we allow it to be a mirror that shines within the fallen nature of the flesh that it would reveal our sin and drive us to Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is a commonly held belief, I think, today, held among many that uh, for the most part, Men are considered pretty good. Mankind, on the whole, is generally recognized as being full of people who are basically good and decent people. There may certainly be some bad apples here and there, or there may be social processes that can be corrupting influences on some men, or there may be some who have mental health challenges. No, there's no sin anymore. It's every, every problem is a mental health issue. That, that may be a, an exception, but on the whole, the average person in his nature is basically good. There are some even professing Christians who hold to this very thing. Some believe it even about themselves. They are good people because they go to church, because they have believed basically in the bare minimum truths of the gospel or because they do good deeds and acts of charity. There is something that is within them that makes them good something within their nature, something within their hearts that they can look to and and recognize and say of themselves, I'm I'm a good person. Now, this is a very common belief that's held today. It has been around, of course, for quite some time. In a sense, it's really the, the long influence of the old Protestant liberalism spreading its leaven throughout 
the church, throughout the world even. I've been mentioning J. Gresham Machen a lot lately because, of course, he's the subject of our Sunday school lessons. And it's the 100th year anniversary of his probably most well-known book, Christianity and Liberalism. But it's fitting to, to refer to him because the kinds of battles that he fought for orthodoxy and biblical truth in his day are still the same kinds of battles that are, that are being fought even today. One of the central tenets of the old Protestant liberalism was that man is basically good. You're not a sinner, fundamentally. He's a good person. Machen wrote in his book, Christianity and, and Liberalism, of this Protestant liberal view, he said, according to modern liberalism, there's really no such thing as sin. But the very root of the modern liberal movement is the loss of the consciousness of sin. Characteristic of the modern age, above all else, is the supreme confidence in human goodness. The religious literature of the day is redolent of that confidence. Get beneath the rough exterior of men, we are told, and we shall discover enough self-sacrifice to found, found upon it the hope of society. The world's evil, it is said, can be overcome with the world's good. No help is needed from the outside world. This idea, of course, is well over a hundred years old now, and if you trace it back to its pagan roots, it's much older than that. This is not only one of the oldest errors that has been with us, but it is also one of the gravest, one of the most dangerous. Because if, friends, your anthropology, if your doctrine of man, if your doctrine of sin is in error, if it does not reflect reality, if it does not sufficiently account for the great evil that is clearly seen with the naked eye, and most importantly, if it is not in accordance with the Word of God, well then at the root of all of your beliefs, at the root of your entire worldview is found a dangerous error. If you see man as basically a good and decent creature, and you see yourself as basically a good and decent person, well then will you not, will you not then have a very difficult time in seeing your need of a Savior. If you're not all that bad, if these descriptions you read, perhaps, in Scripture of the wicked, of evildoers, it's about those people out there, and has nothing to do with your own heart, well then what will Christ be for you? Why will you need a Christ? You may call Jesus your Savior, but what will He ultimately be saving you from? Some bad decisions that you've made here and there? 
some mistakes and stumblings that you've, you've had, some unwise choices. You may indeed acknowledge that Jesus is your Savior, but because He is not saving you from any real great danger, because your sins are not really a poison that is destroying your soul, and because your will itself is not enslaved by the dominion of the flesh and the devil, because you are not under the just condemnation of Almighty God, and your predicament is really not all that bad of a predicament, you will be ultimately no different from Simon the Pharisee, who loved little, Jesus said, because in his mind, he had been forgiven little. Jesus will not be for you the one who is worthy of all of your adoration. He will not be the one for you who is worthy of being kissed on the feet and anointed with the finest oil. He will certainly not be worthy of all your devotion and your whole life. He will be nothing more to you than an accessory. He's an add-on. Your life, your soul, is basically good with some problems here and there. And Jesus is just the help for those problems. You can take care of the rest. If this is how you view Jesus, you will go on living in deception. And the tragic result is that you will find yourself at the very end, in the last judgment, in the company of the wicked. You will find yourself among the Pharisees because you will not have found yourself first as a great sinner in need of a Savior. So you won't have a Savior. You will stand on your own feet and you will fall. Now, I don't want that for you. That's why we gather regularly, week after week, to hear the Word of God, to hear what it has to say to sinners like us. I don't want you to perish in a lie, in self-deception. That kind of Jesus, that kind of faith in Jesus is no saving faith. It is a false faith that refuses to love the truth, and it will result in your perishing forever. But I want you to see Jesus for who He truly is. Of course, the only way that you can see Jesus for who He truly is is that you must see yourself also for who you truly are. Jesus is the one who saves sinners. Let's underline and bold and italicize that word. Sinners, wretches, wicked, evildoers, he saves those people. 
The, the, the ones you would think could never be saved. The too sinful. He saves sinners from the depths of the darkest swamps. He is the one who pulls you out of the mire with all of your filth and uncleanness, and then He washes you clean with His blood. But again, to see Him as He truly is, you must see yourself as you truly are. And the psalm that we're in this morning describes for us the true nature of man. It reveals for us the deadly predicament that mankind is in. It shows us all of the self-deception that is at work within the natural man. This is a psalm that is, of course, nearly quoted in full by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 as summary evidence of the fact that all men, Jew and Gentile alike, are under sin, and because they're under sin, they're all worthy of condemnation by God, of eternal judgment. That's what sinners have earned. That's what we merit when we are living our lives apart from Christ, indulging in sin, that's the wages we're working for. A just judgment of God. This is a text, this is a psalm that shows us His judgment upon sinners. And for the Christian who does in fact have Christ and who does in fact have the Spirit and who has been born again, this is a psalm that is still equally instructive for us personally because we still have the sin nature within us. We haven't reached glorification yet. We still have the flesh. We have been given the Spirit, if you're in Christ, that wages war against the desires of the flesh. They're at enmity with one another. But you still have the flesh. You still have the old man that hates God and that hates the Spirit. And there is a constant battle for the Christian. And this text reveals for us the nature of that old man. So that when we're truly looking at ourselves and seeing our sin, when we're, when we're looking at the Word of God as, as a mirror, we're not ever going to be deceived by the old man into believing that sin is actually good. The flesh is an enemy. And we need to know our enemy. When we go into battle, when we go to fight against sin, we need to know who we're fighting against. We need to know the strategies that sin and the flesh and the old man wages against us. We need to know the lies. So this psalm teaches us what is his character? What is his nature? So that we might subdue him and walk in righteousness in Christ. So this is what we're going to consider together this morning. The nature of man. 
I want to give you four characteristics from this psalm of that nature. First, the nature of man is governed by pride, ruled by pride. The reigning power within the natural man is pride. Now, pride is not simply thinking too highly of yourself, though that is certainly a defining mark. Pride, probably most fundamentally, is the fact that you exalt yourself over God. Now, in in doing that, you're thinking too highly of yourself, obviously. But at its root, it is an exaltation of yourself over God. It is believing and living as if you know better than He. You could run the world better than He can. Your ways, your values, your wisdom is higher and better than His. It is always a flagrant defiance in the face of God. And this is what the natural man does always. He is full of pride. Even his humility is often false humility that is nothing more than subtle pride. In verse 1, if you look with me there, David says of the children of man, of the fool, that he says in his heart, there is no God. This is the essence of pride. A casting off of what he knows to be true. Namely, that there is a God and that He will call to account. The fool suppresses this knowledge. He holds it at bay. He uses his own sin. He uses his own lies. And he holds at bay the truth that he knows because God has revealed it to him. That He is a God who is there. And He is a God who will hold to account. The fool speaks to himself intentionally. He has no need for the serpent in the garden to lie to him because he has mastered the art of self-deception himself. And as he speaks to himself, the primary lie that he tells himself is that there is no God. And he does this so that he can defy with as little guilt as possible the God he knows is there. David had made this same statement we saw back in Psalm 10. First, this group of psalms that speaks of the ways of the wicked. And and here he rounds out this group of the Psalms with the same statement again. The fool is a secret atheist. The open atheist who believes that all that exists is what can be observed by the naked eye is himself a fool. He makes his foolishness known to everyone. But David is not speaking about the open atheist here. He's speaking about the secret one. This is the kind of man who may very well be religious. In fact, the context demands that the very people whom David is talking about here were religious. David's enemies were not 
anti-religious, they were idolaters. They were creature worshipers. Ask them if they believe in a god or many gods and they would tell you, yes, of course I do. But they have no fear of God in their eyes. Whenever there is an opportunity for them to sin and to satisfy their lusts, they tell their hearts. They speak to their conscience. They reason within themselves. And they say there is no God. They cannot truly exalt themselves over God, nor can they argue with His ways. And so the sinful heart must bury its head in the sand and live as if He does not exist. And live as if He does not see. This is where all sin begins. It all starts here. It starts with this lie and a feeble attempt to suppress what is inescapable. That there is a God that He does see and that He will hold you accountable. We are given all the evidence we need to know that there is a God who is there. Creation itself bears witness to the reality of God. Contrary to the modern atheist, it didn't just pop into existence. It was divinely created. And you see its laws, you see its patterns, you see its beauty, its intricacies, the mechanisms even of the human body testifies to the reality that there is a God who has made all of this who is far more intelligent than any of us, than anything else in creation. And besides even looking at creation for evidence of God, He has placed eternity within our hearts. We can't escape that reality. We know that death is not the end. Why does everyone know that? Because God has placed it there. It is a testimony of himself. The fallen man tells himself a lie that he is not there. And when this lie is embraced, and when sinful man tells himself that there is no God, it will inevitably produce all manners of evil, which is the second characteristic of the natural man. The natural man is actually incapable of doing any good. He's incapable of doing any good. It begins with this secret atheism, this denial of God. God does not see. God will not hold me to account. And then it produces the fruit of unrighteousness. That's the second characteristic. He is incapable of doing any good. You cannot do good when your life is lived as a denial of God. You can call your life good. You can measure it up against other sinners and maybe by comparison convince yourself that you can do good, but before God. And in His eyes, 
There's not a single deed that fallen man does that is ever good. Even the Apostle Paul makes this point in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, when he speaks of the man who lives according to the flesh. This is the man who does not have the Spirit. This is an unbeliever. He says of the man who lives according to the flesh. In verse 5 of that chapter, he says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And then further down in verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, notice, it can't. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is nothing that sinful, fallen man can do. No work that he can call a good work that is in any sense a good work in the eyes of God. There is no capability, no capacity, no prospect, no possibility of sinful man left to his own nature apart from the external work of God to do anything pleasing to Him. He is morally incapable because His nature is inherently hostile to God. It's like, for example, if you could, if you could imagine two people fighting with each other with all kinds of anger and they're snarling at each other and they're swinging their fists left and right. They are full of rage. And you were to say to that person, you were to say to one of them in the midst of that rage, hey, do good to your fellow neighbor. Would they even listen to you? No, they'd be inflamed by the rage. Those words would go in one ear and right out the other. They would probably not even hear them. Because their, their moral capabilities in that moment renders it an impossibility. They are inflamed with anger. And so it is with the natural man apart from God. He's morally incapable of doing anything pleasing to God because he is by nature at enmity with Him. This is the same thing that David says in Psalm 14. In verse 2, he says, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Unless we think that this is just David's assessment of man that is perhaps tainted by some bad experiences he's had. He's had some people who've been trying to kill him. Maybe, he's, maybe his judgment about the nature of man's a little clouded because he's had a bad experience or two with some people. Lest we think anything of the sort, we find in verses 2 to 3 that David's assessment is the very same as the Lord's. Verse 2 says that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. He looks down and He sees. 
from his throne that he is sitting on in heaven and rendering judgment from, he sees. It's like Genesis 6, for example, in the days of Noah, when he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He is looking down and he is seeing not just what is on the outside of man, but with what's within him. And it was only evil continually. Or like in Genesis 18, the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, when the Lord went down to see whether they had done altogether according to the outcry that had come to Him. The Lord is looking down and seeing the children of men. He looks to see if there are any who understand or any who seek after God, and then He renders His verdict. Verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Any doctrine of man that does not account for this divine judicial verdict of God on man is a doctrine that is unbiblical and untrue. Entire church ministries have been built around this profound error in the belief in the goodness of man and in the assumption that men seek after God. There's no one seeking. There's no such thing in the eyes of God as a seeker-sensitive church. Because there's no seekers. There is enmity. God tells us here what is truly within a man. What he sees. And what he sees is corruption. And the heart that is holy to him. He sees men who have an appearance of devotion and religiosity. They may offer sacrifices. They may offer tithes. But even then, they are no different from Cain who contrary to Abel, you'll remember, who brought the best, who brought the firstborn, they give half-hearted offerings to the Lord. They give a half-hearted life to Him and to other gods. This is how the sinful heart treats God. We may give Him service. We may give Him an offering out of duty. But it will only be the bare minimum. Whatever, he, whatever we can spare, He can have. The heart's not in it. And in having these half-hearts to God, we treat Him with utter contempt. Stephen Charnock wrote, would not any prince or governor judge a present half eaten up by wild beast or that which died in a ditch a contempt of his royalty? A corrupt thing is too base and vile for so great a king as God is whose name is dreadful. But that's what the, that's what the sinful heart does. It may know that there's a sense, there's a, there's a duty 
that man owes to God, but even when he is giving that duty to God, even if it's the true God, doesn't want anything to do with it. He would rather do otherwise. This is even the case that often our, our many sacrifices are blotted and blemished by being offered in drudgery. To our shame, we can be like Israel, who Isaiah said refused to call upon the name of the Lord because in the words of God, they have grown weary of me. That was God's assessment of His covenant people. They have grown weary of me. I wonder if you ever grow weary of God. Can you say that? Maybe you hear that and you go immediately as a reaction. No. no, no, no. I know that's the wrong answer. I don't grow weary of God. Maybe even some of you children, maybe you know what the right answer is. You're asked a question. What, what's usually the answer? You know, you're asked a biblical question. Uh, Jesus. It's the same thing here. Maybe you know. You shouldn't say that. You grow weary of God. It would be wrong for me to say that I'm weary of God, and yet, of course, a tree is always known by its fruit. How often do you have opportunity to pick up His Word and read it? How often do you have opportunity to read the words of the living God? The very words that David said caused his heart to rejoice. He wants more. The words of God caused him to rejoice. How often do you pick up the same words? The words that the blessed man meditates on day and night. How often do you have opportunity to rejoice in them and you say to yourself, I'd rather hear from something else. I don't have time. Perhaps you pick up His Word to read or you're listening to it and everything in your mind is saying, when will this be over? When can I be done? You have no taste for the things of God. You have no desire for them. And this is the case because God's judgment from heaven about you is true. Together they've become corrupt. You can't enjoy things. You can't enjoy the things of God in particular when you don't have God. The natural man is incapable of doing good because he has no life and no spirit within him. He will have no desire to be in fellowship with the people of God, to be with the body of Christ, to have anything to do with the things of God because he doesn't know Him. 
Moreover, on a related point, the third characteristic we see is that the natural man is at enmity with the righteous. Verse 4 says that all the evildoers eat up the people of the Lord as they eat bread. And similarly, in verse 6, they want to shame the plans of the poor or the oppressed, the, the afflicted of the Lord. There's always a hostility that exists between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Christ. Sometimes it may break out in violent persecution. Other times, it may just be that quiet disdain that simmers in the soul. There is a conflict that inherently exists because the children of darkness cannot have fellowship with the children of light. I remember distinctly growing up as an unbeliever and never wanting to be around any Christian. Even if they were my own family. Because I knew I'd hear something about Christ. I'd hear something about Christ, about, about the Gospel, about the Bible. I'd hear something related to Christianity. And that did not sit well with me. Why? Because Christianity has to do with the things of life, and I was dead. The Gospel and the Word of God is a word of light, and I was in darkness. It was as if all of these Christian people were strangers and held views that were bizarre and even at times dangerous. Of course, then what happens? The Lord, in His kindness, saves me from my sin. And now that's all I want to be around. I want to talk about the Bible. About Christ, about the Gospel. These things I hated, now I love. What happened? Life happened. Christ happened. But if Christ is not in your life, you will have no taste for the things of God. And that includes His people. They will be strange to you. They will love things that you find bizarre. They will want to speak of things that you have no interest in at all. And you will be an alien. So how are you personally around the people of God? Do you want to be around them? Do you delight to be around them? When there's opportunity to be around them, to be around the brothers and sisters in Christ, is that what you're trying to do? As much as I can, I want to be with the saints. Do you enjoy speaking about the Lord and about His Word? Or are you always trying to find ways to avoid those conversations? The desires of your heart will and do reveal where you stand with the Lord. Because if you can't have fellowship with His people, His body, there's no way you are in fellowship with the head. 
That's the basic message of 1 John, isn't it? You can't love Christ if you don't love His people. And if you don't love His people, you don't have Christ. There is an enmity that exists between you and them. You are more familiar with, more comfortable around the evildoers than you are the company of the godly. And to use the words of Jesus, the reason is because you are of your father, the devil. That's who you're aligned with. The natural man who walks in darkness does not like to be near the light because it is the light that exposes his works. And so, there's hostility in some form. Open violence, secret disdain, there's hostility. And then lastly, fourth characteristic of the natural man is that he is presently condemned. He will be condemned if he remains in unbelief and sin, but he is also condemned now. Of course, we see this in verse 2 of the psalm where the Lord is already rendering a verdict about the children of man, that they are corrupt. That is His present judgment. But also in verse 5, which there it says, there, and, and this word here has this, a temporal sense to it here, so it's like there at that time, they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. The, the text here has a similar idea as that of Psalm 2, verse 5, which says of the rebellious peoples, then the Lord will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. The point is that the wicked, the natural man apart from Christ, stands at present under condemnation and will tremble when judgment falls upon him at the end. He is most unhappy now because the only happiness he knows is the happiness that sin provides, which is nothing more than a lie that leaves you empty after every single indulgence. The sinner who says he rejoices because of his sin is no different from a person enjoying the taste of the sweetest dessert that is laced with poison. You may think it's making you happy while it's killing you. The enjoyment, in fact, is the very thing that is killing you. But there can be no true enjoyment and there can be no true peace or true happiness when you stand condemned by God. And in the final judgment to come, when all of the ingredients that make sin taste so good are removed and the only thing that remains is the bitter taste of the poison, the false happiness the sinner knows now will be an eternal unhappiness and terror and judgment. And as Jesus said, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a 
summary of the nature of man. This is a glimpse into the depths of his fallen state. And for anyone to have any hope, they must understand this. You must understand this. You must have a proper doctrine of man. A proper understanding of the nature of your own sin. Before any cure can ever be gladly received, a doctor must show us the disease that is killing us. And this psalm, friends, this psalm is God's mercy as the good and great physician showing us the disease of the sinful heart. Showing us the poison that is all throughout the blood running in our veins, permeating the entirety of our bodies. And why has God done this? Why in His Word has He given us such gloomy news? Such clear statements about our depravity. Again, this is not a psalm when you read especially the first five or six verses that should leave you going, happy days! I was greatly encouraged this morning. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Wasn't that wonderful? Happy Father's Day. No, no, no. We're talking about depravity here. We're talking about a cancer. You receive news of cancer? No, no, we've had some receive news of cancer. That's not good news. That's not good news. Why has God told us this? Has He done so? So that we might figure out how to treat ourselves? Maybe now that, now that I know that this is here, I, I can stop doing all the abominable deeds. Maybe now that I know my, my nature is corrupt, I can stop being corrupt now. I can take off the filthy clothes and put on the, the clean clothes and fix my life up. How it ought to be. And then I can present it to God. God, I, I changed my ways. Can't you see? Now, this is not the reason that he tells us these things, that he shows us our nature. Because it would be an impossible task to fix ourselves. The corruption goes down deep into the heart. It is our hearts that are atheistic. It is our nature that is fallen. And the leopard can't change his spots. And friends, he lays bare our corruption here not so that we can figure out how to fix our own lives up so that we can have some sort of moral reformation or resolve. He does so so that we might lay our lives down at his feet. There's nothing we can do. We need a good father who will receive a prodigal son 
who has squandered his whole inheritance away by his profligate living. That prodigal son doesn't come back and say, on the way back, I earned everything back. He squandered it all. And he's got nothing to bring. He goes back to his father for mercy. We need to be made altogether new. We need a Savior. And it's a Savior that the psalm ultimately points us to. David wishes for salvation to come. He says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. For Israel. This is his context. These are the same people he's just been talking about. It's the Jews. His fellow kinsmen around him that he sees every day. They're the ones he's talking about. They're the ones trying to kill him. They're corrupt. No one does good. As God is looking at this nation of covenant people, no one does good. What does he say? Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. He's looking for a Savior to come from Zion. Why? Because God promised that the Savior, that David's offspring, would indeed come from Zion. As for me, the Lord said, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And as David looks for salvation to come from Zion, he then identifies this salvation as coming from the Lord Himself. For he goes on to say, when the Lord, when the Lord restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice Let Israel be glad. That phrase there at the end. Restoring the fortune of His people. This is a very common phrase found all throughout the Old Testament that speaks of God's saving works. We see it in Deuteronomy. We see it in Jeremiah. When God makes promises to His people about a salvation that is to come after their exile. He will restore their fortunes. We even see the same phrase being used of the nations, of the Moabites, of those from Elam. We see that in Jeremiah. At the end of that book, God is speaking of various judgments that would fall upon all of these Gentile nations, but then He ends by saying of each of them, I will restore their fortunes. It is a phrase that has to do with salvation. And here in the psalm, it is the Lord who is bringing that restoration, that salvation. The point is that David is looking for and hoping in a Savior who comes from Zion and who is the Lord. The Lord's Savior. The Lord Himself. And that Savior has indeed come in the person of Christ. 
He is the promised King who comes out of Zion. He is the Lord of glory Himself who restores the fortunes of His people. He is the only One who can restore us. The only One who can take us from the depths of our depravity and restore us as image bearers of God. And the only One who can save us from our sins, cleanse us, and make us new. We need a new nature. A new heart. And He's the one who gives it. He's the one who has the power of nature, of creation itself within His very breath. He is the one who by a word created the heavens and the earth and said, let light shine. And there was light. And it is the same word of power that He uses in the hearts of dead sinners when He says to each one of them by name, live or let there be light. And the sinner lives. The sinner gets a new heart. The sinner whose heart had depths of darkness now shines because he's made new. He is the one who gives us his spirit. And he does so so that we can truly walk in the ways that are pleasing to God. And so when we find ourselves in Psalm 14, having our sin laid bare, being brought to a point of utter despair, He's the one we cling to. You must run to Him as a prodigal son running to His Father. You must confess to Him as the prodigal did to his father. You must say to the Lord, I've squandered everything. I've sinned against you, God. My whole life has been a disaster. Because I've loved my sin more than you. And I can't change that. But you can you can make me new. You can give me a new heart. You can wash me clean. And your word promises that if I as a sinner come before the feet of Christ, He will wash me clean in His blood. You have to go to Him and in humility cry out to Him. And when you do, He will save you. So friends, if that is you, if you are the Psalm 14 man who has never known Christ, today, that's what you have to do. There's no greater thing. There's no other thing for you to do. We're going to go outside and we're going to eat. You need to confess and repent and come to the Lord. And then we can eat together in celebration of new life. Or if you're those who have known the Lord, what do you do every day? You still do the same thing. You repent of your sins, you confess them, you bring them before the Lord, and you cling to the promises of Christ that He came to save not the righteous, but the sinners. And He will wash you clean and restore you and give you the hope of eternal life.
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, your word lays bare our hearts. We cannot escape the reality that we are often these men, these corrupt ones who say within our hearts, who believe the lie of the flesh that there is no God. And when we tell ourselves this, it gives us license to go on sinning. Lord, we know from your word, because you are a God who when you speak, you cannot lie, we know that the end of such living will be eternal death. And so, Father, this day we pray, we cry out to you that you would wash us, that through your word, You would teach us not to listen to the lies of the old man and the flesh. That we would listen to the promises that you've given to us in your word. That we would heed your warnings. That we would come to the Savior who comes from Zion. Embrace him as our own. And so be saved. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.